We're dealing with others all day long. We navigate them, we tolerate them, we, we sort of withstand and abide them, right? But we don't, we don't engage with them as equal subjects in a way. Welcome to Diversity, Difference, Otherness. This podcast is part of Themester 2017, a themed semester brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences. I'm your host, Hannah Boomershine, a senior in the Media School. In each episode, we invite faculty members to share their work and how it relates to this year's theme. Today, we explore otherness. In the United States, how is Thanksgiving a test of assimilation for immigrants? How do monsters in pop culture reflect our deep fears and desires? Why does the Twilight Zone still resonate with viewers today? Our guests are Ed Comentali, Vivian Halloran, and Steve Kroenke. They explore these questions and more about how the other affects our food, pop culture, and collective fears. Up first, we have Vivian Halloran, a professor of English and American Studies. I moved to the United States from Puerto Rico in 1987 when I was 16 and a junior in high school. So I went to 12 different schools from K through 12. Then I uh, studied my undergraduate degree in English and Spanish in Boulder, the University of Colorado Boulder, and then pursued my PhD at UCLA in comparative literature. And you're also an author of a book called Immigrant Kitchen. Is that right? Yes, that's uh, right. So I was wondering if we could talk about food as an important aspect of American culture, but also immigrant culture, immigrants who come to the United States, how they carry those traditions, those culinary traditions. Certainly. So one of the things I, I do in the book is I look at Thanksgiving celebrations, both because it marks the way in which the settler culture and the native cultures made some peace and sat around the table and shared their resources, but also because it tends to be a time in which immigrant stories get featured. How are people acclimating to their new life as US citizens? Well, let's look and see what they're doing for Thanksgiving. And there's a lot of human interest stories in that. My project in the Immigrant Kitchen was to look at memoirs that had recipes because, and that were written by immigrants, children of immigrants, and grandchildren of immigrants. That section of the population is eager to tell their stories, both about how they connect to their grandparents' generation that came to the States, or how they would like to have their fellow compatriots recognize their claim to American identity by eating the food they serve. And oftentimes, the easiest way in which to have a conversation about immigration is it's through food, through a meal. So I read these memoirs as instances of virtual hospitality. They provide us a meal if we follow the steps and make the dishes for ourselves. And then we close that loop as readers by eating the food that's on offer. I find that it's otherwise awkward. People have questions about what's it like? How are you liking the States? Or um, the children of immigrants. My children are marked by my own journey into becoming a, a U.S dweller. I was a U.S. citizen as a Puerto Rican when, when, the, when I was born, but really moving from the island to the United States and having to speak English all the time and doing things the way Americans do them is, is a real adjustment. So even though I didn't have to apply to be able to come, I could just get on a plane and move. Nonetheless, the process of acculturation was long. 
And um, one of the key markers of that was my first fall in the United States. I opened the door to find that the neighborhood had given our family a turkey with all the trimmings. And that made us feel really welcome. Like the U.S. officially welcomed us into its fold. And, and thus I look at immigration-themed Thanksgiving movies because they're a nice break from nobody can stand their relative Thanksgiving movies. And look at ways in which people creolize the turkey, for example. They make it according to their own spices or they stuff it with rice like we in my family do as opposed to the traditional trimmings, but they're nonetheless observing this national holiday. You mentioned that food might be an easier avenue to talking about immigration. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's, even though it's not actually the case, people perceive food and eating together as not necessarily political when it's absolutely political. But it is a larger, older tradition of hospitality, of welcoming. And because it sets the tone in that regard, people feel free to ask about the ingredients, perhaps unfamiliar things to them when they really want to know about the lives of the immigrants. And the immigrants really want to talk about how they have it here. And so by writing about food, they have a point of entry into sharing their lives, their struggles, as well as their achievements. And it's something that people can feel good about and we can do to get, we can eat together, even if it's only virtually. So it sounds like these recipes have functioned as proof of this story and, and our stories in themselves too. Yeah, um, there's a, a great memoir called The Lost Ravioli Recipes of Hoboken. And it's an effort by a woman to connect with her paternal grandmother, um, who's long since died, by trying to get to the bottom of the creaminess of the filling of the ravioli she just loved as a child. Well, after she goes on this journey to Italy and tries, you know, she learns various different techniques and she bonds with her neighbor across the street who wants to make handmade ravioli. She ultimately concludes that, you know what, it was my grandma's personal preference and she was using Philly cream cheese is not at all traditional. So sometimes the effort to connect with original foodways turns up the fact that people had no access to ingredients when they first immigrated, if they came in the late 19th century or early part of the 20th, or that people's tastes are idiosyncratic. So, you know, I know that the real recipe is calls for X, but I'm going to substitute Y because I like it better. And so that is enlightening and it allows for that notion that improvisation and creativity are as much of the process of cooking and eating as is anything, any fidelity to an original way of life. And so it's a great record of how culture changes. So now we've been talking about food as as an avenue to get people to interact who might not normally, but in what ways can it be a barrier perhaps to you know, maybe othering certain groups. Oh, well, I have a chapter that deals exactly with this in my book in which people remember bringing food to their lunchrooms that their parents had made for them. You open it up and the other children's reaction is like, oh, that's so stinky. So the the stigma of bringing stinky food was a bigger thing than it is currently. I think nowadays there's so many eating restrictions that nobody really expects anybody else's food to be the same, but garlicky food. Um, Diana Abu Jaber in her memoir, The Language of Baklava, talks about how she and her family were having a barbecue in the front yard 
and neighbors really complain. It's like, you don't do that in the front yard. That's a backyard kind of thing. Um, so that was a neighborhood saying, no, this is the way we do things. Her father was from Jordan. But then later as a teenager, bringing garlicky food home and then having all sorts of teenagers go, hey, can I have some of that? So she had a positive experience in the schoolyard, a negative experience at home. But other uh, children's a great book called Bento Box in the Heartland about someone who is Japanese American growing up in Versailles, Indiana. She would bring home, uh, bring to school rice balls in a bento box. And children looked at her like, what is that? And so her reaction was to go to the bathroom and eat in one of the stalls so that nobody would see her or complain about it and then eventually come home in tears and demand that her mother make her peanut butter and jelly. And these are coping mechanisms. I think among adults, there's a certain kind of cachet associated with trying new cuisines. And yet there's every opportunity for people to you know, flub that as well, saying, oh, I can't possibly have so much spice, or can you make this with a... So when you start telling the ethnic food makers to make it less what it is and more to your taste, it's a certain imposition of, of taste, then why are you really interacting with this food? If, if it's not going to please you, why? Yeah, I, I, I think that example too of just the lunchroom that you mentioned earlier, I mean, if you don't have that nice Hebe and J and mm-hmm. like crackers, yeah, yeah. It's, kids, kids notice that. But like you said, adults too, I mean, in maybe more subtle ways. Um, yeah. Oh, and it's interesting. It's like, who makes your food? Anthony Bourdain's very, very outspoken about the fact that the back of the restaurant is often made up of people who are not from this country, a lot of them undocumented, and uh, working in really kind of inhospitable conditions. So, you know, food can make you feel guilty, food can make you feel good, but the, the fact of the matter is that the immigration system needs some serious thought, and people need to have conversations that are not so vitriolic, and not about the actual immigrants, but about the policies and what the nation wants, uh, and how to move forward. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for thank coming you. in today. We've explored the intersection of food, immigration, and otherness, but otherness also appears in literature and pop culture. Our next guest, Ed Comentali, explains how monsters and zombies represent both our fascination of and repulsion toward what we deem unfamiliar and strange. Komentali is a professor of English and the Associated Vice Provost for Arts and Humanities on campus. So I study zombies as much as you can study zombies. I'm not particularly happy about that because I don't like zombies. I'm not impressed by them at all. Um, uh, they, they're sort of scary to me and I, everyone's about to take a break from, from studying them because I get a little too depressed by the apocalyptic you know, landscape. But in, in zombie theory, you know, as we call it, there's, there's a lot of emphasis on the uncanny, which is this idea of the, the familiar made strange. Um, it's, a, it's a concept that comes from Freud, uh, and Freud often uses it in, in thinking about dreams, uh, that your dreams often contain features from your everyday life that, that are familiar, but there's something like slightly strange or off about them. So they appear both familiar and unfamiliar at the same time. Uh, and it was why, you know, we love surrealist art and David Lynch and, you know, so many, so many great products of, you know, Western culture in the last hundred years, trades in the uncanny. But zombie films are, are inherently uncanny because everything that was once familiar is now sort of taken out of context and bears traces of otherness, right? So the people that you loved and who are familiar in your life now appear to you in, in monstrous form. 
uh, and there's a kind of short-circuiting of the familiar and the unfamiliar, and a really um, a desperate attempt to kind of navigate this 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 newly othered terrain. Um, but the whole landscape is like that. I mean, I, I love watching zombie movies uh, just for the settings, to see gas station signs and supermarket products and designer clothing kind of strewn about. Um, the whole world is is sort of made strange, uh, and it, it creates that that kind of shocking you know, firing of the synapses of like, this is a world that I know, but I don't know it anymore. And that sense of othering is like really key to the logic of, of those zombie films. So. Yeah. Do you think that making the, the familiar unfamiliar is more scary, for instance, in a zombie movie than seeing a movie about another world that is not like our world at all? Right, right. Well, th- there's this great concept, um, it's actually a chart called the Uncanny Valley that was designed by a, a Japanese computer scientist who worked in robotics. And the Uncanny Valley is basically this theory of robotics that the closer a robot gets to human form, the f- more freakish it seems, right? So we can all, we can all um, enjoy uh, cute toy robots that are metallic and have sort of machinery exposed on them. But as soon as you start adding uh, skin or hair, Right or any kind of more human expressive features, the more freakish they they become to people. And we know this because you know kids are often really horrified by dolls. Um, and the more realistic the doll looks, uh, the the more uncanny it seems. Right. And so there's this kind of way in which you know recreating the human or reproducing the human becomes almost inhuman, in a way. Uh, that that there's a moment where that like the perfect human becomes the most inhuman thing. Uh, in a sense, in robotics, let's say, and in the uncanny. There's also like a concept of otherness that I think is related that has to do with ethics. In, in my field, uh, in English studies, but also is related to philosophy and religion as well, um, and ethics, there's a difference between the other, a sort of lowercase other, uh, who is just a person that you have to navigate around, and the other, like capital O other, as, as someone who elicits uh, an ethical or humane response from you. We're dealing with others all day long. We navigate them, we tolerate them, we sort of withstand and abide them, right? But we don't, we don't engage with them as equal subjects in a way. But there are shocking moments where an other becomes a capital O other and sort of makes an ethical demand on you or, or forces you to, to recognize that you have some ethical responsibility. And there are so many philosophers, particularly in the 20th century, uh, Levinas is one of them who talks about the face of the other that sort of makes an ethical demand on you, where you, you're, it calls your own subjectivity and your responsibility, your responsibility as a subject um, forth, calls it forth. Yeah. Can you give an example of what a lowercase other would be compared to an uppercase <laughs> other? Um, I mean, just, just in, in zombie films, I mean, you know, you have to navigate a horde of zombies and you might be slashing your way through it, but, but all of a sudden one of them might make eye contact with you or whimper in a certain way um, or any sort of appealing expression might give you pause and, and cause you to think twice. But I think this is this similar to what happens in downtown Bloomington. Um, you know, it's so easy to, to pick your way through Kirkwood Ave and, and walk past the homeless in People's Park or anywhere else on that street. But there are times when there's certain interactions that draw forth something deeper in you and really kind of force you to rethink your responses. Well, I know you said you didn't want to talk as much about zombies, but I am sure. curious though about monsters in pop culture and in literature mm-hmm. as being a really interesting example of 
other or something different, uh, something cast away from society. And I know that Frankenstein is turning 200 right. in 2018. Mm-hmm. And so if we could talk maybe about Frankenstein, but also like what makes a monster mm-hmm. and what defines that and kind of goes back to our discussion about where do we draw the line? What is otherness? Who defines otherness? Right, right. And what makes a monster? Definitely. I mean, you know, there's a classic theory of, of monsters and the monstrous that basically suggests that monsters are the like the repressed side of our culture or society. That a monster in a, in a book or a film or a song is something that's been buried, something that's not allowed to reveal itself. Usually it's some form of sexual repression that now emerges in monstrous form. It's something that we're drawn to, but also afraid of. So when a monster appears, there's always this sort of double reaction to it. The monster is often doing stuff that we'd like to do, <laughs> right? Because it's often reflective of some repressed urge or, or id. But at the same time, we've been told not to do that, right? So when monsters appear, they often appear both attractive and repulsive at the same time. You know, there's that doubling of response. And so you can do, you know, anyone can do a kind of quick, you know, historicization of monsters and when they appear because they they always seem to reflect the kind of repressed underside of the society in which they appear. You know, so vampires in the 19th century, uh, you know, it's an often, it's an aristocratic beast often preying upon the working class, right? And so there's a sense of the class struggle that emerges in the vampire. Um, I would say that Frankenstein, you know, often expresses um, tensions between science and, and morality, right, for its time period. Um, these, these monsters seem to pop out of their cultures and they, they seem to encapsulate all the conflicted desires, you know, of that moment in time. I was curious too, you were saying that, you know, monsters tend to embody, they kind of work with the time period too, you know, with vampires and we see Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk about what you think would be an ideal monster today? I'm, I'm trying to think of what we would consider monstrous today. You know, for me, it's people are scared of a lot of things today and that are real. And it's very hard to find monsters that could compete with the stuff that we get in the news, in, you know, in a daily way. And I, I think that there's a grave sense of like widespread otherness. People don't feel at home anymore. They don't feel like their homes are safe. And it'll be interesting to see how that, how the kind of filmmakers and the, and the, the writers of the future will, will ultimately translate those feelings into some kind of like recognizable monstrous form. Uh, so I, I think the question's out on that. I think we're a little bit too scared to have any make-believe monsters at this point in time. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. That's my answer for that. What we mark as other has the power to frighten, but also to entertain. Professor Steve Kroenke explains how the Twilight Zone used aliens and nuclear war to make social commentary in the late 50s and mid 60s. Kroenke is a senior lecturer in the media school and also director of national program development for WTIU, the public television station in town. I came to TV from the theater business, so I'd been in theater for a long time got tired of that and so moved over into television and I've been doing that ever since and uh, I've been here for about I think almost 20 years I've been at Indiana. Um, So then moving into what you're going to be teaching in the fall, you're going to be teaching the Twilight Zone. Yeah. Uh, Can you give some background uh, for people who are not familiar with the show, what Mm. it's all about? Wow, there are people who are not familiar with the show. That hadn't occurred to me. It's an iconic American television program that 
aired in the 50s and the 60s and was really a leader in a scripted television that really showed what scripted television could be. The show itself uh, was a half-hour show. Each one was a little teleplay, uh, very different from television now. Um, very often one single scene um, that would be some complicated event taking place and a sort of beginning and a middle and the end all in the same scene. And so uh, they always started the same way with Rod Serling uh, standing in the, usually in the middle of nowhere, just speaking directly to the camera and sort of laying out what this story was going to be about. The story would unfold, uh, usually fairly dramatic, sometimes comic, but mostly dramatic usually about weird stuff, aliens and monsters and psychological issues, um, time travel, anything. So, so you, you started to think of it as kind of science fiction, but I would say it's probably more accurate to call it science fantasy. And then at the end of every episode, he would wrap it up with a kind of moral, that there was a reason for telling you this. And sometimes that was surprising. More often than not, it was confirming of what the audience had already figured out. I know what this was about. And it wasn't about aliens, and it wasn't about monsters. This was about us. And all of the stories were really about us. That's important because this took place kind of in the aftermath of the McCarthy hearings and, and the Red Scare and the beginnings of the Cold War. So paranoia ran deep. Not only were people afraid, they, they were afraid that they weren't afraid. They, they, they thought they should be afraid of something. And so they started making up things to be afraid of. Uh, and a good metaphor for that was always aliens. Um, and, and that ended up being what most people think of the Twilight Zone as being about, is alien invasion and stuff like that. What's been your personal experience with this show? When did you start watching it and what drew, drew you to it? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I started watching the Twilight Zone... I think when I was a kid, I mean, I was in elementary school, so I probably started watching it more with reruns than I did with first runs. In fact, certainly I did. But, I mean, when I was a kid, everybody knew the Twilight Zone. Everybody knew the Twilight Zone theme song. And, in fact, if something was weird, that's what people would do, was they would start singing the Twilight Zone theme song. Um, and... So it had a kind of a ubiquitous quality to it that that if you if you used a Twilight Zone reference, everybody knew what it was you were talking about. For viewers today who might not be relating to those issues that were going on, say in the fifties, mm -hmm. how are the themes of the Twilight Zone still relevant to what's going on today? Well, one of the things that the Twilight Zone always dealt with was the difference between uh, being human and being a subset of being human. And none of us gets to decide really who, who is actually human or not. And even in the series, that was pretty firmly stated. You were either human or you were not. But if you were not, you weren't from around here. You were from Mars or you were from Venus or someplace like that. As far as Serling's observations 
went, he realized that there was a lot of power in creating the other, in defining the other. And that if a person could define somebody as the other, then they could control that person, particularly if they could instill the fear in all of their sort of constituents or subjects that they might too be considered other. In other words, it's bad to be the other, not just different. So for example, if you are defined as not from here, you're almost always in this sort of Rod Serling's universe, you're sort of always defined as probably bad, easy to do if they're from Mars, they just want to take over, right? Harder to do if it is uh, a person who wants to uh, impose their political point of view. So uh, Serling decided, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to worry about the political point of view. People will figure that out, right? They will figure out that that it's a false dichotomy, that these are all just human beings who are trying to live their lives, that uh, somebody or some bad actor is going to try to take that away from them for their own purposes. So is that the Soviet Union and Khrushchev? Is that the U.S. government? Is they, Who is that? Certainly didn't go there. He just said, it's just a universal bad that everybody can agree on. Yeah, absolutely. How did audiences react to episodes with messages like that? That's a really good question. I, I, I think on some level... Audiences were, I, I don't know if it's really fair to say this, I, I, but, but my sense is audiences were slightly different then. Uh, in the first place, uh, many people thought of television as being a way to get news, and, and they thought of it as a news delivery service. Others saw it as a way to get pretty much mindless entertainment. Most people didn't really see it as a, as a way to learn something. And but, you know, people then just just as now, there are a lot of really smart people who who were really fascinated by some of these big ideas. And Rod Serling figured that out. Gene Roddenberry figured that out with Star Trek, that audiences would uh, would respond. Uh, You know, the civil rights movement didn't come out of nowhere. People people had been feeling this way for a long time and then they needed a they needed social permission to move forward and to to start taking political action. And so leaders realized there were people who, who would follow. Well, those are the same people who, uh, maybe not all of them, but a lot of them are the same people who are really interested in these messages. Uh, we can be better people. Every, not everything has to be a duality. Um, there are different ways to think. We need to be aware of the fact that the actions of one person can affect everybody, that we're responsible for more than just what happens to us. And geez, you think about it, and this is some really complicated times, and right at the kind of beginning of when things got really complicated, like the Cuban Missile Crisis and all the civil rights stuff happening in the 60s, the Vietnam War, um, the Cold War really getting nasty. Um, it was an interesting time, and Rod Serling was right there at the beginning of it, and to a certain extent was sort of pointing out what we should be paying attention to. Well, thank you so much for yeah. coming by. This yeah, is- this is fun. 
I'm Hannah Boomershine, and this is Diversity, Difference, Otherness from Themester at the College of Arts and Sciences at Indiana University. Our theme music was created by IU Jacobs student Kyle Shart. <laughs>